welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told through the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Hear your news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I'm your host, Fred, and that great theme music is by Roger Craig of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. And today, we are continuing our theme of uh, noir in the summertime. Uh, you know, <laughs> the last few weeks here in Maine have not really felt like summer, so um, actually is, uh, you know, a little bit more uh, gloomy and gray, sort of like uh, the dystopian San Francisco of uh, noir drama, so I think that uh, works just fine. Um, today we are going to be featuring work of Otherworld Media. Otherworld Media is the production company of David Osman and Judith Walcott. Now, uh, David, of course, is one quarter of the legendary Firesign Theater. Uh, we've featured Firesign uh, a few times here on Radio Drama Revival. People who are not as familiar may be surprised to know that David produced plenty of audio drama not as part of the Firesign Theater, but uh, with his wife, Judith, a um, uh, number of things. We did play the uh, 50th anniversary War of the Worlds piece. Uh, we will be featuring a chunk today from Raymond Chandler's Goldfish. Uh, they've done tons of stuff over the years. Uh, they did a 200th um, anniversary of the Bill of Rights um, with a uh, piece, We Hold These Truths, a um, all-star um, new adaptation of that. Uh, they did uh, The Wizard of Oz, the first full-length a- adaptation ever done in audio drama, uh, and a number of other productions over the years. So uh, really a dynamic duo, <laughs> to use kind of a cliche term, but a really fantastic group. Um, they live now in uh, the Seattle area, Wimby Island, and are uh, still producing plenty of work. Um, they've actually uh, most recently been doing uh, various uh, stage theatrical productions for International Mystery Writers Festival um, held in Owensboro, Kentucky, um, discovering new mysteries. Um, they've uh, adapted several new shows for, um, f- uh, you know, as, as screenplays have adapted them for uh, the audio drama format. They also have done this uh, splendid uh, retelling of Agatha Christie plays um, originally written for BBC Radio, um, uh, unknown to, to many people. Uh, you know, obviously, we, we, most of us are familiar with the, the Agatha Christie novels. Uh, well, she also did some uh, BBC Radio plays, and they uh, brought those back uh, again with a fantastic cast: Phil Proctor of Firesign, Linda Peterson, and others. Um, so, uh, really, just uh, continue to put out new work, and also, I think they're working on getting some of their uh, earlier shows, um, stuff that was done for NPR in the um, 80s and 90s out um, available again um, you know as, as one of these things sometimes not all that work is available um, and uh, especially not since the lodestone catalog has uh, not been uh, available so it's just a uh, really exciting to have them on the show and to be talking about um, this and uh, yeah so we'll uh, be starting today uh, with the first half of Raymond Chandler's goldfish this is a um, hour-long field recorded uh, show uh, recorded up in the Seattle area uh, where it was really originally set uh, it's the first short story by Raymond Chandler um, of course, with Philip Marlowe, the uh, tough, rugged private eye, femme fatale, all that uh, classic, classic noir drama, which, of course, works really, really well as radio drama. So um, we'll be featuring that. And then uh, stay tuned after that for a conversation with Judith Walcott, who's just a spectacular individual. Really excited to be uh, able to interview here on Radio Drama Revival. Leading off here with Raymond Chandler's Goldfish. Hope you enjoy. Weedy, dee, weedy, weedy. I let the breeze in the office and the soot from the mansion house oil burners across the alley 
rolled across the glass top of my desk in tiny particles, like pollen drifting across a vacant lot. I wasn't doing much detective work that day. Looks like another busy afternoon, Marlo. Better catch a bite to eat when I got the chance. Marlo? You caught me. Huh, Catching up on my foot dangling. You ever hear of the Leander Pearl, Seamus? Sit down in the company chair, Kathy. You've been listening to grifters again. Hustlers, Nighthawks, nickel grifters hanging around the cigar counter. Here. Gosh, that blue surge shines. You must have money in the bank. Clothes you wear. No to both your ideas. I never heard of the Leander Pearls, and I don't have any money in the bank. Then you'd like to make yourself a cut of 25 grand, maybe. Shut the window, will you, Marlon? I get enough of that hotel smell on the job. Go on about the 25 grand. It was 19 years ago. They had the guy in Leavenworth 15, and it's four since they let him out. Who, Leander? No. Saul Leander was a big businessman from up north. Bought them for his wife. The pearls? Just two of them. They cost 200 grand. Mm. Must take a hand truck to move them. Lot you know about pearls. Anyhow, they're worth more today. Reliance Indemnity still has a 25 grand reward out on them. I get it. Get what, Marlon? Somebody copped them. Now you're getting yourself some oxygen. The guy they had in Leavenworth? Sipe. Wallace Sipe. Only they never proved he got the pearls. It was a mail car job. It's going to be a long story. Let's have a drink. I never drink till after sundown. That way you don't get to be a heel. Oh, tough on the Eskimos in the summertime, anyway. <laughs> it was a mail car job? Sipe was alone. Got himself hidden in the car, and up in Wyoming, he shot the clerk. Cleaned out the registered mail and dropped off. Got all the way to B.C. before they nailed him. And all they nailed was him? Right. The pearls, the rest of it, been stashed somewhere. <sighs> he wouldn't squawk? Not a peep. So they gave him life. Then after 15 long years, they offered him a pardon if he'd loosen up with the loot. He gave up everything but the pearls. Said he never had them. Where was he keeping the stuff? In his hat? Listen, Marlowe, this ain't just a bunch of gag lines. One time in Leavenworth, Wally Sipe wrapped himself around a can of white shellac. Got as tight as a fat lady's girdle. His cellmate was a little man they called Peeler Mardo, doing 27 months for splitting $20 bills. Sipe told him he had the pearls buried somewhere in Idaho. Yeah. Getting to you? Well, get this. Peeler Mardo is rooming at my house. He's a coke hound. He talks in his sleep. Good grief. I was practically spending the reward money. Yeah, I know it sounds screwy. Peeler says he knows where Sipe is now. I believe him. He talked all that in his sleep? Of course not. Marlo, I was a policewoman for a long time. Until you tried to reform Johnny Horn. This has nothing to do with Johnny. Allow me. Thanks. 
Anyway, I got cop's ears. I'm nosy. I knew right away Peeler was an ex-con. I was worried about him using so much stuff. He's the only rumor I got right now. I sort of hung around his door and listened to him talk to himself. Finally got enough to brace him with, and he spilled the rest. He wants help to collect. Where's Sipe? That's the one thing he wouldn't tell. That and the name Sipe's using now. But it's got to be up north. Puget Sound. Peeler did 90 days in Olympia. Fishing without a license or something. What's Peeler doing down here? An old con always goes back to look at the piece of sidewalk he slipped on. They hung the Leavenworth wrap on him in L.A. No friends here now. Except soft-hearted Kathy Horn. Yeah, he's a nice little runt. Will he talk to me? He's aching to. He's scared about something. Go on out now before he gets junked up for the evening. Sure. If that's what you want. I don't rate much in it. Maybe not anything. But if I could have a grand or two waiting for Johnny when he came out, maybe I... Maybe you could keep him straight. It's a dream, Kathy. It's all a dream. But if it isn't, you can cut an even third. Thanks, Marlo. It's a double house in Silver Lake. Here's the key to my side. 1432 Hyperion Terrace. There's a door in between apartments with a key on my side, just in case he won't answer the bell. Okay. Listen, Marlo. The old guy? Sight? What about him? Fifteen years. He paid. He paid hard for a couple of pearls. Doesn't it make you feel kind of mean? He stole them, didn't he? Killed a man? What does he do for a living? Peeler says his wife has money. Sipe just plays around with fish. Fish? Goldfish. To hell with him. It was 3.30 when I walked into the lobby of the mansion house, over to the cigar counter in the corner, where a drunk was trying to light his smoke with an old-fashioned flint and steel lighter. Try a match, Buster. Fluid. Kathy? Well, you didn't take long. Lucky's. Sure, Marla. It's heavy. Get set. Here's your change. I'm set. You cut a full half. Peeler's out. He's been bumped off in his bed. Oh. Listen. Don't say anything until I'm through. I got to your place, rang both doorbells. Nothing. Let myself into your side. I found the connecting door, opened that. It was like stepping through a mirror. The same layout, backwards. I noticed his feet first, and the smell. He's tied to the bed. Somebody burned his feet with a cheap electric iron. Not yours, I looked. 
He died of shock. Maybe heart failure. There's not another wound on him. I'd say he died pretty quickly and couldn't have said much. The gag was still in his mouth. He was still warm. I found a pint of scotch in your cooler. You used some of it. And yes, I wiped off everything I touched. What do I do? If Peter opened up, we're through. So a sipe. But he didn't talk, there's still time. When you get home, you'll find him. You don't know a thing, leave the pearls out. Leave me out. They'll check his prints. They'll know he had a record. They'll figure it was something from his past caught up with him. Can you face it down? If you can't, now's the time to speak. Of course. Do I look like a torturer? You married a crook. He isn't. He's just a damn fool. We talk now, you can say goodbye to any share and any reward, even if one is ever paid. It's not our murder, after all. Darn too. Ah, poor little runt. I'll be seeing you, Kathy. Pearls. Cost Reliance $150,000. Your 25 grand reward still good? 20 grand, Marlowe. We spent the difference ourselves. You're wasting time. It's my time, Mr. Luton. Suppose I have you covered from now on. What then? I'll know I'm covered. I'll quit. Give what I have to the cops. Go home. <laughs> Why would you do that? Because the guy that had the lead got bumped off today. Oh? Not by me. Listen. I know you're crazy, but you get anything, bring it in through our boys. We need the advertising. What the hell do you think I live on? 25 grand. I thought it was 20. Sipe never had those pearls, Marlowe. If he had, he'd have made some kind of terms with us many years ago. 25. And you're still crazy. And it's still my own time. Should I see him? I'm a kind of a guy had sore feet. I lied. I knew Rush Matter, an ambulance chaser, an alibi builder upper, anything that smelled a little and paid a little more. I never heard of him in connection with any big operations, though, like burning people's feet. Well, well, the old dog catcher himself, the eye that never forgets. Marlowe is the name, I believe. Well, well, uh, sit down. Glad to see you. Nice here to drop around. Business? Any, uh, any ideas? About what? But how we could do a little business together. Who was the Wren? Huh. What Wren? The one that phoned me. Did somebody phone you? <clears throat> what are you calling copper for? 
I want to talk to you. You know a broad that knows a man with sore feet. Should have to be that way. If you think I'm going to sit here and count clouds with you, it does. All right. All right, don't get sore. Talk sense. You've got a job it's probably too dirty for me to touch, but at least I'll listen. Okay. I play dumb myself sometimes. The thing is, why is Marlowe? Carol saw you go into the house and leave it later. No law came. Carol? Carol Donovan, friend of mine. She called you up. Talk about pearls. Yeah. Carol picked him up one night. The little guy, full of snow, he, he talked about pearls, about how an old guy up north had, had swiped them a long time ago and still has them. Only he wouldn't say who the old guy was or where. Foxy about that. Don't know why. He wanted to get his feet burned. I, I didn't do that. You or Carol, what's the odds? The little guy died. They could make murder out of it. Listen, Marlowe. You didn't find out what you wanted to know. You think I have information you didn't get? Forget it. If I knew enough, I wouldn't be here. And if you knew enough, you wouldn't want me here, Jack. Two-way split, Marlowe. I'm cutting Carol out. She's too damn rough. Never think to look at her, would you? Have I seen her? She said she did. In the gray Dodge. Gray eyes, snappy blue suit. Yeah, she pulled past the little guy's place when I was ringing the bell. I've seen hard women, but uh, she's blowing on the armor plate. Look, I can get 50 grand for the Leander Pearls, Marlowe. Twice what you can get. Half of it, it's yours. How about a drink? Why cut me in? You got a front. I need to work in the open. I don't know any more than you mentioned. Not enough to go as far as 50 grand. Water? No water. Uh, I like it in mine. Drink up, Marlowe. Here's the pearls. Pearls. So far, I'd only made four mistakes. The first was mixing in at all, even for Kathy Horn. The second was staying mixed after I found Peeler dead. The third was letting Rush Manor see I knew what he was talking about. The fourth, the whiskey was the worst. Drink up, Marlowe. I keep a sap in my hip pocket. I wanted to Don't use it on that soft, Marlo. round face. Oh. Lie down and sleep it off, Marlowe. You're through. A very pretty girl in a blue suit stepped out of the clothes closet and poked a 32 at me. Her face was fresh and young and delicate and hard as a chisel. Believe you would. It grew large and wobbled. The floor rose up and bumped me. That's fine. Like a raft in a rough sea. I'll take the little sap for boy. I braced myself with flat hands. <laughs> lady, lady killer. Lie down, Marlo. Two-way split, huh, Rush? Don't like my methods? Well, bless your big, soft heart. We'll see about you.
I came around again, it was night. I got up off the floor like a man climbing out of thick mud. I left the office, rode down to the street in the shuddering elevator, slid into a bar and had a brandy, then got my car and drove on home. I changed clothes, packed a bag, and had some whiskey. It was about 9.30 when the phone rang. Yeah. So you're not gone yet. I hoped you wouldn't be. You alone? Yes, but I haven't been. The house has been full of coppers for hours. They were very nice, considering old grudge of some kind, I figured. Where was I supposed to be going? Well, you know, your girl told me. Little dark girl, very cool, name of Carol Donovan. Carol, yes, she had your card. I bet without even thinking about it, the name of a town up north passed your lips. Listen, Kathy, I made a dumb play with a shyster named Matter, and I am... Vaguely. Office downtown? Corn building. Matter doped me, and Carol Donovan put me away with my own sap. She's the one who took care of Peeler. I'm sorry, Marlo. She seemed... young and sweet. Yeah, that's what Peeler thought when she offered to do his ironing. I'll catch the night plane north. So long, Kathy. California. You want to bring the top coat along, you come up here to God's country. I got a reservation anywhere? No. Someplace near the docks? Well, maybe you want to snow me. Coffee shop, baths in the room, not too nosy. Snow me. Fine. Yeah. Better than sleeping on the 2 a.m. puddle hopper from Frisco. L.A. Los Angeles. Well, what'd you want to live there for? I pay you in the movies? Costume jewelry. Ah. So you're here for the fishing? Sort of. I'm in the market for some goldfish. What? I'm a little deep in this here, mister. Goldfish. Well, now you want salmon, partner. I can tell you where to get them six feet long. You want sewer crabs, you just walk down the hill there to the lumber wharf, catch them with a net. Goldfish? Ha! <laughs> Nuts to them. Here we are. Here's the snow quality. There. That'll be two bits. Oh, hey, hey, you want to go out to the ocean, do some surf fishing, you call me, hey? Yeah, yell a cab and you ask for Shorty. I'll do that. Thanks. Morning. 
What'll it be? Little Rye. Yeah. You know anybody keeps goldfish? Nah. Two bits. Ah. Is this bonded? Prima Dixie. Straight rye guaranteed at least four months old. Uh -huh. I see, it just moved in. What's that, Craig? I just moved in. I'm looking for some goldfish from my window. Goldfish. Do I look like a guy would know a guy would keep goldfish? Draw me a coat before you wet yourself. Yeah. Howdy. Howdy to you. How's Peeler? Oh, you know Peeler. You finished with that table? For today. Yeah. You're still hitting it high, huh? Yeah, I didn't catch the name. Call me Sunset. I'm always moving west. Think you'll stay clean? I'll stay clean. So how come he didn't come himself? Same reason he didn't stay when he was here. Meaning what? Figure it out for yourself. What's your handle? Dodge Willis. In from El Paso. You got a room somewhere? Down the street. You drink scotch? It's better than what they pour here. This stuff tastes like a cholera culture. Let's dangle. Price. 25 grand. Nuts. Listen, I don't know you from last Sunday's sports section. Now, you may be all silk, but I don't know that. Why'd you brace me back at the pool hall? You had the word, didn't you? Sure. Goldfish was the password, all right. So? What's the next angle? Okay, Sunset, you're KG. We could go on like this for weeks. Let's put our cards on the table. Where's the old guy? Peeler didn't tell you? <laughs> you want me to put my cards on the table so you can look them over? Nix! Peeler's dead. How come? The competition. That mean you, Bo? You don't need the rod. I ain't no soft spot for chiselers to lie on. Peeler played with a girl and she milked him. He didn't spill, so she used a hot iron on his feet. He died of shock. I got a lot of room in my ears yet, Bo. So I, Bo. What the hell have you said that means anything? Old man Sipes, living out of Westport. That mean anything to you? Has he got the marbles? How the hell would I know? Where is this competition mentioned? I hope I ditched them. Can I put my hands down and take a drink? Yeah. So how'd you get cut in? Wife of a friend of mine who's in stir. Peeler roomed at her place. He let her in. She passed it to me after the bump. How many cuts your side? My half is set. The hell it is. The girl's in. There's three of us if we can hold off the competition. The feet toasters? Ah, well trouble about that? Who are they? 
man named Rush Matter, shyster down south, fat, not much guts. Girl, Carol Donovan, black hair, gray eyes, 25 or so, hard as they come. She's the iron in the combination. Yeah, we'll soften her if she pokes her snoot in. Uh, listen, let's take the air out Westport Way, look it over. You might ease into sights on the goldfish angle. They say he's crazy about him. I'll stay undercover. He's too stir-wise for me. I smell the bucket. Swell. But you make no error, Bo. It's gonna mean a run out in the woods and some thumb twisting. Snatch stuff, likely. That's okay. The insurance company's behind us. I got a heap over at my place. It'll get us out to Westport, all right. Get back at the door. Yeah, it's open. Okay, hotshot. Ceiling zero. See if you can reach it. <laughs> sure, come on in, Carol. How's the skull matter? Heat him up, Seamus. How about you two heist them? Pretty now. Hey, look out, Carol. Shut up, Rush. Skinny can't shoot before I blow his head off. Cover the Seamus. Yeah, stay where you are, Marlo. Is this love your partner, Marlo? Maybe we should go out in the hallway and let the rest of the hotel in on it. Close the door, Rush. Sure. Make sure you don't slam it, matter. If this is it, this is it. Go ahead, Bo. Yeah. Listen, Carol, this kind of action. Shut up and close the door. Quiet. Sure, Carol. Sure. Well, that's better. I asked if this lugs your partner. We heard about you two. So what's your offer? I wouldn't listen even, but I can't stand a shooting rap. There's enough in it for four. That's right. What do you say, partner? Let him in. Four it is. But that's the top. Me and my partner here, we were on our way to my place. I got a heap we'll sit four. It's an hour or so drive out to the ocean where sight is. <laughs> you must look pretty simple. Kill simple? This ain't a shooting play. Well, go to my place and gargle. Talk it over. Carolyn. All right. Put my heat away. My Annie's in. I'll play. You can get to my place in a hack. It's out of town a ways. Farm country, real quiet. Lots of trees. Lead on, sport. Ladies first, beautiful. <laughs> And that was a sampling of Raymond Chandler's Goldfish. Uh, currently, the only way to get the second half of that is actually to contact the creators, Judith and uh, David Osman. You can go to their website, otherworldmedia.com. There's an email link there. Or you can email oworld, O is in other, world at widby.com, W-H-I-D-B-E-Y.com, oworld at widby.com. Tell them you heard about Raymond Chandler's Goldfish on Radio Drum Revival. I'm sure they'd be happy to hook you up with uh, that story as well as others. They're working now on getting uh, those short stories in uh, greater uh, distribution through Audible and their own channels. Um, otherworldmedia.com. Um, take a, make a little bit of special effort, uh, and uh, you can get the story now. 
And uh, with that, uh, we move on to the interview portion today. We have the huge pleasure of speaking with uh, creator Judith Walcott herself. Uh, Judith, who has been working in radio drama since 79, has had other world media since 81, um, produced a fantastic, fairly legendary radio drama plays uh, during the NPR era of the 80s and 90s, um, still is producing today for stage and other places. Uh, it's our great pleasure to welcome her to the show. Uh, hi, Judith. Uh, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Thanks a lot, Fred. It's nice to be here. So... Thank you. And so it's it's uh you know this this is kind of a, a a kind of big of a huge question but you know going back to you know 1981 um and and the found foundation of Otherworld uh I know uh, you know based on your bio it looks like you you had done plenty of other theatrical work at that time but what led to this transition of you doing more uh, actual radio drama type work? I have always been audio driven from a very early age. My early life um I know we had TV because I sure remember Father Knows Best and Leave it to Beaver and all kinds of things that are just so camp now you can't even believe it. Um, but I was always drawn to the record player and the radio. I was always interested in, I mean, I couldn't believe when my mother put on a radio play for me and I just was fascinated. And of course, I grew up when Gene Shepard was on WOR, and we went to sleep every night listening to Gene Shepard and his fantastic comedic monologues. I did write a play in and that uh, premiered at the Mama Theater in New York. That was a, an early piece of stage work of mine. And then when I went to graduate school in Los Angeles, I, I worked in multimedia even then, uh, doing combined media with voice, music, dancers, poems for dancers. I was always kind of off in my own corner, but, you know, doing something uh, unique, which always involved sound. So uh, I did not finish my Ph.D. I admit that publicly now. I did not finish my Ph.D. in rhetoric, linguistics and literature. Instead, I ran away to Seattle and found the community radio station, KRIB, which was one of the original alternative radio stations in the country. And um, walked in the door there, hoping that I would find someone or something to tell this great idea I had, which was to um, do more radio for children. And I could not believe that there was nothing on the radio for children. And I naturally, naively thought that, therefore, there must be a great need for that. And I went looking for a radio station that would let me. Now, I know that it was right to leave graduate school and moved to Seattle because I had only been in Seattle two weeks when I walked into that radio station. And the general manager said, as a matter of fact, there's a woman right over there who just got a grant to do children's radio and she's looking for someone to help her. So, you know, when something like that, that means that you're on your path, you know? Fantastic. So uh, tell us how uh, you get to Boston and how you, how you meet up with uh, David Osman. I did get to go, and this is where David and I actually met. I mean, of course... P.S. Of course, I was well aware of the Firesign Theater from early on in my life. I'll just say that. My brother brought, him home, brought the album home from college and introduced me to this album, Waiting for the Electrician or Someone Like Him. And we thought, of course, it was the funniest thing we ever heard, here and here and here. And I looked at that album and thought, I saw David's picture on that album. And I looked at that guy of the four of them, I thought, gee, he's cute. 
I put the album down. And I said, what are you thinking? You're never going to meet him. And I put the album down, you know, continued to listen to him. And then years later, there I am in San Francisco at a radio drama workshop with David Osmond as a teacher. I couldn't believe it. But, you know, we had back in the 80s this wonderful place in San Francisco called Western Public Radio, which was created by a, a great, terrific radio curmudgeon, Leo C. Lee. And it was really a mecca for the prime artists in the medium. The Kitchen Sisters, Jay Allison, anyone you've ever heard of who does great work in public radio past the halls of Western Public Radio and its spectacular view of the San Francisco Bay and the Golden Gate Bridge. And many wonderful creatures late night i mean you know you'd get there and you'd be there for seven days and you would work pretty much every moment of those seven days except for brief naps at cheesy hotels so you learned a lot and you got to know this community of people and i mourn the loss of that in contemporary radio right now i i wish that would come back so i was so so i went to san francisco and i met david and we corresponded for a little while so we met, David and I met there, and we had a wonderful time, and he was such a gentleman, and so kind, and so lovely. So flash ahead, I'm back in Seattle now, working my heart out in public radio, being a stringer, having, you know, waiting for that big break, trying to break morning edition and ATC and in on one hand, and trying to keep making radio drama on the other. And lo and behold, I got... Um, a call. I got an interview for a job at WGBH, being the associate producer on that series, which had become the Web Young Young People's Radio Theater. Everett Frost uh, was big in the field at that time, and he interviewed me. And I was very surprised that he hired me. The last time I had seen him, which was at Western Public Radio, I had insulted him terribly. Well, not really terribly. I just told him to shut up because he was driving everybody crazy. So really surprised that he hired me. But apparently that's part of the job is that you have to stand up to people and say, excuse me, but you're out of line. (laughs) The live-in line. So... So it turned out that I was hired and David was hired and we were both hired on the same series. And so we worked together and we did this fantastic production of The Red Badge of Courage, still one of my favorite shows that we've done together because we, you know, that was when we first sort of broke out of the studio, broke away from what I sentimentally referred to as ring a bell slamador radio drama and took engineers out into the field and took them took a herd of men and had them run back and forth across a field shouting (laughs) and we had real musket fire that we got and we went and recorded uh the battle of lexington reenactments and we would have real period arms sound so we liked doing that, and we liked doing it together. And, you know, small rooms, buzzing machines, late nights, homicide or matrimony. What's it going <laughs> to So uh, let's flash forward to the, the War of the Worlds, uh, you know, one of the more famous pieces that you did um, for the 50th anniversary, also with uh, WDBH. Well, 
that kind of came on the tail end of it. The last series that David and I did at WGBH was a long format. We were asked to create a long format radio drama slot for national distribution. It was called Radio Movies. So as part of that series, we did a, a, a live broadcast and we thought it was a really, we brought a studio audience in and we thought, we knew, we were aware it was coming up on the 50th anniversary. So I, never afraid to use the telephone, called up Howard Koch, who had written the original script and asked him, could we do a piece of it? And he went, well, sure you can. Why not? So we did that and we interviewed him for the show. And then afterwards, we realized that it was the 50th anniversary of the war. And we had better get on it. We optioned it right after we did that broadcast at GBH. It was our goal to secure the property because, I mean, it's a no brainer and nobody had done it. No one had called him up and said, gee, Mr. Koch, are you celebrating the 50th anniversary of the most famous radio play? No, no one had done that. So we did, and uh, we had a grant to do to to develop what we were doing further, and that grant allowed us to leave Boston. We were married, we were pregnant with our first child almost instantly, and then we moved to this island north of Seattle with an option on the most famous radio play in the world, and I produced a radio play and a and a son named Orson all nine months, and we were so fortunate in so many ways with that production. I mean, I locked into a really good underwriter, a guy named Ralph Guild, who had a company called Interrep, and their business is selling commercial radio time, and they used the event as a terrific promotional event for them, for their business. I was able to tap on Randy Tom's door, who's had been a colleague in public radio and an appreciative fan of the Firesign Theater, and I said, could we produce it at Skywalker? And he said, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> Fantastic. You have this uh, wonderful field-recorded performance, and of course you have a really stellar cast, um, you know, Broadway actors, and uh, of course for the NPR junkies out there, Terry Gross and Scott Simon, who you're just not going to see in another radio play. Right, and Terry had just started, really, her national show, and Scott had been, you know, doing national and international for some time, but when I called him up, he said, just tell me the, just get me on a flight. I'm on my way. So it was, and they were, of course, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful to work with. I think later on, because there was a little bit of a kerfluffle about that production. Are you aware of that? That it raised some hackles in public radio because one of, we, we sent the whole thing up. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, you, you had this whole uh, kind of bit tongue-in-cheek about, you know, NPR as a as a uh, medium as well. Yes. yes, it touched a few nerves. It was like filling some alum- aluminum for some people. They spilled a little bit. But by and large, it was very successful. So, you know, one of the things that occurs to me as we talk about uh, production like the War of the Worlds and, the, and, the, and just the scope of uh, the type of recording that you did, uh, where you did it at Skywalker Sound... Um, the, the, the cast that you had you know, makes you feel, well, in the distribution, you know, all the different stations, makes you realize that this is kind of a radio event that isn't replicated again. And I wonder if you want to comment on just the, the, the changes in the broadcast medium um, since, you know, since that era in the late 80s. I could actually see this coming. I could see what was happening, that the, 
the division of the broadcast spectrum was going to break up here and that this new phenomena, the internet, which was a new phenomena in broadcasting 20 years ago, was going to change everything. And that satellite radio was just a harbinger of the disintegration of what we consider to be a unified market situation. So a lot of that stuff coming down the pike at broadcasters scared the heck out of them. And they just didn't, and maybe still don't, though some of them are getting a clue, know how to get it on that wave and ride it. It's really taken a long time. And we've seen a lot of technology platforms come and go. I mean, who could have, who could have known which technologies were going to be stable and which weren't? We didn't know as producers. So in 1990 or 91, uh, I began, I, I was a little bit too early, but, uh, you know, developing the concept for niche marketing and multi-stream distribution of materials. So I gathered up as much, about 100 hours of material of my own and my good friends and my colleagues in broadcasting. And we put together 100 hours of a test market spoken word audio channel called Otherworld Air. And I ran it in a cable market using, remember this, an FM drop to try to see if I could get some traction. The concept of delivering content, specialized content, to a willing audience, to an interested audience. The, the, the concept of, um, of, a, of a targeted market for this material, and I believe that the profile is getting bigger and bigger. I mean, otherwise Audible would never have gotten off the ground. And the fact is that the publishing industry was back then, and I kept saying this to public radio uh, people, I kept saying, books on tape is a billion dollar business. It is floating the print business. I knew this because I had friends working at Simon and Schuster in the audio department and they would call me up and say, you wouldn't believe the numbers I just saw. Our little division, our little books on tape division is floating the company right now. That's a well-kept secret. Right. So there's a seismic, you know, shift in just kind of the landscape of broadcast media and, and the scope of, of a, you know, national kind of production, but also, you know, big changes in, in you know, say grant funding, which is just not available as it was uh, back, you know, in, in, in that era. And you wonder what, uh, you know, how, how a producer does that this kind of show uh, in today's environment. You have to be more inventive about how you get funding for what you do. But then on the other hand, you know, people are not doing what we were doing. You know, you can't go to Skywalker anymore. I called Randy up not too long ago and begged him and begged him. And he said, we are booked with movies from now until the foreseeable future. So I'd like to get into a you know pretty interesting shift in your career from, uh, you know, being a kind of a pioneer of these field location recorded type radio plays to actually doing uh, stage performances. A number of your most recent productions have been uh, stage recorded uh, mysteries, uh, both Agatha Christie project and uh, new mysteries. Uh, and, and how does that how did you get into that? And how does that you know differ from how you approached you know, location studio type uh, audio drama? We were um, hired by the River Park Performing Arts Center in 2007 to basically run a live radio theater component for a theater festival that they were already running of new mysteries. 
the theme of it is new mysteries in all genre. And we were hired by who was then executive director there, Zev Buffman. Uh, and, and so we went down there with the idea that we weren't, we weren't really interested in broadcasting, but we were interested in giving the audience an audiophonic experience of these works. So we were able to take, and this is why they specifically wanted us, we took scripts that came from all different mediums. They, these were scripts were not written for radio. They were written for other mediums and we adapted them for live radio performance. That was very challenging. We did, the first year there, we did eight different scripts, six performances of each. Wow, well, do the math, that's a, a lot of shows, huh? And the next year, we bested that by doing 10 different scripts, four performances of each in 10 days. You, you know, that you, you do work like that, and it gets your chops up so that you get better and better. You know, you get the thing down. You know what you're doing. You know what you're going for. That second year that we did that, uh, in fact, we did record. First year, we didn't, we didn't record too much because in the first year, they were not really paying too much attention to the quality of the sound because we were in a little room. It was like a utility room. We put carpets all over the floor and curtains, you know, drapes all over and around it. And it was intimate. We were doing all of those shows in no time flat. And the idea was to expose the audience to new mystery works. The emphasis the year after that, when we did the big, the big lineup, 10 scripts, I specifically hired an engineer to record them so that we could turn them around into radio. We just turned it around so that we would have that material the following year to promote the festival. And that year that uh, Zev secured the rights to these Agatha Christie radio plays, these four unknown radio plays that in a library, in the BBC library, and had not been done recently. So he handed them to David and I and said, what do you think about these? And we both felt that they would be interesting because they had not been seen before. But one of them was the first sketch that she wrote for The Mousetrap. It was originally was written as a radio play. And she wrote it fast down, she says in her biography, autobiography. Um, and, then, uh, and then the others were just, they were very unusual. They were clearly Agatha Christie, but, you know, you'd never heard them before. And what they were were tropes, things that she could do to fill a 35-minute because the BBC slot was always 35 or maybe it was 36 minutes. You had to have, Your radio drama had to be 36 minutes. So this is what she could do in that time slot. David and I were sitting around thinking, how are we going to bring these together? And David said, well, I know. Let's have Miss Marple narrate. I said, that's you thinking, but actually, let's have Agatha Christie narrate. I had been reading her autobiography. It was eminently readable and very adaptable to my purposes, which was to find continuity. And then where she hadn't written it, we did. And um, and then the job became, we, we, we tried those out in Kentucky, and the job then became, how do we stage this? How do we make this work as theater? We know we can do this as good radio. We know that. How do we make good theater out of it? The idea for me and the challenge for us was to take the, the bones of radio play and make something dramatic in the watching and experiencing of it. We foregrounded the performance, really. Foregrounded the voice performance. 
So we tried a lot of different things. We, we, we were trying to move it in a theatrical direction with sets, lights, you know, just get a feeling for what we might do. So we had a black box film that we took over and I made a deal with Bose, uh, helped me do a minimalist surround sound room. We had this wonderful little magic theater in which I drove incredible sound around the room, completely disoriented the audience. They thought they were coming to a radio show, but no, suddenly they were in the radio show. They were in the environment. I had this thing like crowds coming up and conversations overlapping. And, and then we added some, you know, very minimal set work here on Whitby. I mean, I had some, you know, triads, you know, tri-sided cubes, and I had abstract imagery so that three of them, and you would put them together like a little box of blocks where the faces would turn and they would make different scenes and um and we had some projection to suggest that projection was a good way to go with this show so everything was done i kept saying well this is like doing a show on a train table this is the train table size that's when i called randy tom back up he randy and dennis leonard who was a close associate and a really top-notch engineer they built me some fantastic sound bits. Beautiful. I had Harry Potter's trains, for heaven's sakes. Beautiful, rich, dense effects. And then I went to a genius engineer I know in Minneapolis, Steve Weiss, and we played with them in Minneapolis in his studio, developing the full surround sound treatment of what it would be like to have an audio-driven entertainment. It was, it was a great piece of work. I'm very, very proud of that work. Yeah, what a great night. I did actually manage to hear that on streaming, um, and it was great. Uh, hope uh, I know you, you can't release that now. Hopefully, maybe we'll get it one day. Um, I do know you are working on getting more of your archive available. So I guess before we close, Judith, you want to talk a bit about your efforts there and kind of your, your current projects and, and what people are uh, going to hear uh, come from um, Otherworld Media? Well, we're pulling our, our archive of work together, and... We will be making it available through audible.com. Some of it will be available on Audible, and some of it will be exclusive to Otherworld Media, and we're developing our site right now so that we can do our own downloads. That's what we're working on as far as the audio, our our audio enterprise goes. And we will be making more of the worlds available again this fall for download. And along with that download, we have uh, incredible uh, archival resources that have not been heard ever in their entirety. Like the entire interview with Norman Corwin in which about what happened when he was in the studio upstairs the night of the War of the Worlds. How very irritated he was at Orson for disturbing his work. That was the most annoying thing of all. Orson, what's going on out there? We have a lot of jewels and gems that'll be packaged and available uh, in October. Fantastic. Well, uh, when you have that together, we will make an announcement here on Radio Drum Revival. Tell listeners uh, where to get it. Um, You did tell me that if people want to hear uh, the rest of what we heard today, uh, the Raymond Chandler's Goldfish, uh, you can email Judith and Dave Osman at oworld at widby.com, W-H-I-D-B-E-Y.com. And in the meantime, there's plenty at otherworldmedia.com to keep you entertained. 
and uh, yeah, and just learn about the the history. Uh, see some of these really fantastic, fantastic performances you've done uh, over the years. And so, uh, with that, I, I guess that's we've, all the time we've got today. Uh, Judith, thank you so much for uh, making the time and be here on Radio Drum Revival. Thank you, Fred. And that was Judith Walcott of Otherworld Media, otherworldmedia.com. Lots of information there um, about the various shows and some cool art, too. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, do check that out and uh, check out the work of Otherworld Media. Uh, they're one of uh, the fantastic uh, parts of audio drama history as well as its future. Um, still um, producing new work. Really excited to be able to share that with you. Um, go there and uh, stay tuned for when you can purchase works um, from Otherworld Media. Um, fantastic stuff. Uh, all right. Now, uh, we've got all sorts of stuff happening. Uh, next week, we're going to be out in Minneapolis, Minnesota for the uh, Convergence Con. Um, that's going to be uh, we're reporting live from there next week. So the podcast on July 5th will have uh, some samples of the winners from our War of the Worlds 75th anniversary contest. Um, so 25 years later, War of the Worlds is still resonating with people. We got some fantastic submissions. Um, really, all of them were, were wonderful. Uh, and we, but we, we had to make some tough choices, come up with the top three. And you'll be hearing those next week here on Radio Drama Revival. Um, and we'll give you the links of where to hear the other um, submissions for the War of the Worlds 75th anniversary and also in general having a great time out at the convergence con out in minneapolis um hanging with uh the various mark time and ogle award winners and uh, yeah if you want to keep yourself entertained in the meantime over 200 hours of programming at radiodramarevival.com at the mondo archives page there um you can follow us on facebook.com slash radiodramarevival um, or on Twitter, at Radio Drama. Um, of course, also on iTunes and Stitcher. Search for Radio Drama and uh, spread the word. Thanks. Um, leave us a few bucks if you prefer, if you can, at RadioDramaRevival.com. Keep this volunteer service running. Um, yeah, and with that, um, it is a wrap for this week. Radio Drama Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhalgh. Copyright of individual shows remains their original producers, but please share this show as far and widely as you'd like. Radio Drama Revival originates in on-air radio at WMPG-FM, Southern Maine's community radio podcast at radiodramarevival.com as a labor of love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week. Mm-hmm.